I was struck this week uh, as I had opportunity uh, to watch our nation uh, mourn the loss of our 41st president, George H.W. Bush, and uh, happened to be home during some of that time, and I don't know if you had opportunity to watch, um, but um, there had been a number of days, about five days of preparation for uh, the different memorial services uh, for President Bush and uh, started at the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C. in just, uh, of course, an amazing, uh, not only setting, but also a service as they gave tribute to his life and then to, to um, take his body from there uh, on Air Force One, uh, brought it back to the Promised Land, to Houston, Texas, and uh, for another service the next day at an Episcopal church in Houston and also just a magnificent church and uh, setting for um, just remembering his life and uh, then uh, I know some of y'all are Aggies and to see him loaded on that train as he wanted to be and that train to go from Houston to College Station and for then his, his casket to be taken to his his library, which I'm a little embarrassed to say that I've um, had four kids go through Texas A&M and I've never been to the library, but it's on our list. It's on our list now uh, to go and to see, but just to see that complex and to be taken to a private burial setting. And so really for several days, we as a nation uh, remembered a, a great man. Uh, so many things were said about him. Uh, and I know I'm a little different. Uh, it's not the time to say amen, Brother Cody, but, uh, you know, I, I, I watched all of that and so much preparation and so much involved in that, and I want to say rightfully so. I don't want you to mistake what my words are today, but I sat there and I thought, this week, this is just me, in one of our villages in Africa, Somebody passed away, and uh, they took that body, and there were young men that were dispatched out to the place outside of that village to dig a grave with, quite honestly, the community shovel, uh, because that's what they do in our villages in Africa. They just have kind of community tools, and maybe this village had two shovels, I don't know. And um, what I do know is that day, they buried that body. And uh, there were some words said. And uh, yes, there's a gathering for several days outside the hut. uh, But pretty much that was it. And I was just struck by the thought of whoever that person was, and I, I don't know. In one of our villages in Africa and a former president of the most powerful nation in the world and uh, the differences of uh, how they were laid to rest and it it struck me because we as men and uh, see people from a certain perspective my thought was how does God see these two people 
And uh, that's what I want to pose to you today. How do we see people? How do we view people? And what value do we place on their lives based on the way that we view them? And is that the way God sees them? And please don't mistake whatever I've just said as a kind of an opening illustration to make us think. Uh, President Bush was uh, a powerful and a a great man uh, and was deserving of that time. And it it, it was right for him to be celebrated, his life to be celebrated in that way. But how is it that God sees people? And and what what does that teach us? about how are we to view people and how are we to value people. Um, How do we look at people? By the clothes that they wear, the house that they live in, the job that they have, the friends they hang around with, their family, the way they look, Maybe their age, maybe it's their social standing or how much money they have. Uh, I would contend today that the implication of this question has everything to do with how we see our world and how we are to carry out the missions to all the nations of the world. Um, this Christmas season and a season in which we are drawing a parallel between the story of Christmas and our call to missions, um, I've asked that we just fix our minds on this one phrase from John's gospel. And John doesn't tell the traditional story in the way that Matthew and Luke do. Uh, he tells it more from a theological perspective. And it's this verse 14. And just the first part of verse 14, when John says, and the word became flesh. And we've probably talked a little bit about the word become, but mostly it's been the word flesh. What are the implications for us to think that God himself came in human form? The implications so far have been that it gives us the scope of his mission, that it was to all people who are human beings. That was his target audience. It tells us the extent to which God was willing to come to be the Savior, that he would not only come to us, but he would become like us so that he could become our Savior. And I believe, and we talked about that last week, that it it gives us that sense that our lives are also to be incarnational. We are to be fleshing out the gospel to all the nations of the world. But this morning, I want to dig a little bit deeper because the reality is, is it's not just that Jesus came in the flesh, but there was a certain kind of flesh in his circumstances, the way he was born, and the life that he lived that I believe today have implications for us. And it tells us how God sees people and how God values people and how we in turn are to view and to value people. And here it is. 
what we discover from the story is that Jesus came as a common man born in humble circumstances to live a simple life. When you, when you look at the story, and I understand we can glean that from, from John 1.14, but really it's the other stories and the other scriptures in the Bible that we begin, when we begin to look at it, one of the things that ought to strike us is that when God himself came to be our Savior, that he came as a common man, and he was born in the most humble of circumstances, and when you read the rest of the Gospels, he lived a simple life. And that ought to be such a resounding truth and statement when we read the gospel stories that we ought to go, wow, when God shows up, he comes as a common man born in humble circumstances to live just a simple life. But I would contend it has everything to, today to teach us the implications of that, of how God views people and how in turn God values people. When we read the Christmas story from the different accounts, uh, we realize that Jesus was born in humble circumstances. Uh, the first reality that we need to deal with is that Jesus was born, well, that's, there's a period there. Jesus was born. He was a baby. I would contend this morning that God had another option. He could have just come as a full-grown man, as a prophet, just to say, I have arrived and I've come. And he could have, he could have lived the same life and, and done all of that. But what we discover from the story, and, it, and I mean, obviously this is like, duh, the Christmas story that the Savior was born, he did not come as a full-grown man but he came as a baby. In fact, the prophecies of the Old Testament, uh, I think of Isaiah's that were, were quoted later at the birth of Jesus. Uh, but Isaiah 9, 6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. God's answer so our needs of salvation were answered by the birth of a child. Not only in that scripture, but also in Isaiah 7, 14, that a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and his name shall be called Emmanuel. Um, I won't even go back from there. Because <laughs> the truth of the matter is, the story doesn't start with the birth of Jesus. Jesus did not begin as a baby who was born. Jesus began as a baby that was conceived of the Holy Spirit. And if you want to talk about the humblest of circumstances, try to wrap your brain around this. God, at one point in history, was an embryo. And I can't think of anything that is more vulnerable than an embryo 
in a mother's womb. But there was a point conceived of the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit came over Mary that God himself (laughs) wasn't just that he was a baby born, he was an embryo that was conceived. And I can't think of anything more humble than that. If you think about the city in which he was born, the city of Bethlehem, Bethlehem was a small village. Uh, It has really no great significance in the Bible other than, and this is the reason he was born there, it is the hometown of King David. But even that's somewhat of an overstatement because David wasn't a king when they discovered him. Do you remember? He was the number eight son. And God says to Samuel when he took his hand off of Saul, you remember why they picked Saul? Because he was a head taller than everybody else and he was a good looking guy and had all the natural charisma. Well, that didn't work out very well. And God says to the prophet Samuel, go to anoint a new king. And it's like, okay, where am I going? One of the prominent cities? No, no, I want you to go to the little village of Bethlehem. Bethlehem, seriously? Yeah. And I want you to go to a guy by the name of Jesse. And I think Samuel's sitting there going, wait a second. God's not coming to me. I, I, don't, I don't know a Jesse from Bethlehem. I, I, he's, not, mm, he's not on any boards. He's not, he's not a big religious leader. I, I don't know who, who is Jesse. And the story, Samuel has to ask. <laughs> I'm here to sacrifice and I need Jesse and his boys. And the firstborn son shows up and there's something in Samuel's heart to go, oh, yeah. This guy's got potential, and God says, eh, eh. it's not him. Seriously, not him. No. And there's this parade of seven boys that come by. And, and what God says to Samuel in that point is, no man looks at the outward appearance, but that's not the way God judges people. And finally, it's the eighth son that they have to call for, and Samuel says, I, I'm not sitting down until you go get the boy who's tending the flocks outside the city of Bethlehem and he comes and God says that's it number eight son David the teenage boy he's the one the only notoriety to Bethlehem is that David was from there but the prophecies and quite honestly because of that the prophecies were that when the Messiah would come, he would come from Bethlehem. But in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, Micah 5, 2, the prophecy of where the Christ would be born. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, and notice how it's described, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in in Israel, whose goings forth are from old of old from everlasting Bethlehem though you are little among the thousands of Judah we immortalized it in the words of a hymn O little town of Bethlehem it has no great significance in Jesus that is where he was born obviously they'd gone there we know from the gospel story to be registered in the census no room for the child they end up in a barn 
immortalized in our nativity scenes. And it specifically says in the scripture in Luke 2 that he was laid in a manger. The feed trough for the animals. There had to be animals around. Get the picture. Jesus was born in the most humble of circumstances. Not only as a baby, but in a town, a village of no great notoriety. And in a barn in that town. And the only crib was a manger. Even if you think about his hometown of Nazareth where Jesus ends up and his parents had come from, it is in Galilee. It is not in the, the power circles of its day. It is in, it is in Galilee. It's, it's away from the religious and political capital. Gal- Nazareth is so um, unimportant, it's not even mentioned in the Old Testament. And in fact, when uh, Jesus comes on the scene, um, in John chapter 1, there's this statement by uh, one, of the, one of his early disciples says, Hey, come and see Jesus of Nazareth because we believe he is, he is the Christ. And Nathaniel says in John chapter 1, Can anything good come from Nazareth? And I don't think he was talking bad about the people of Nazareth. He was just saying, This is podunk. You're telling me? I was about to name some names, but mm, boy. See, in my old age, I'm getting smarter. I'm not going to name any names of towns in East Texas. Uh, can anything isn't it, don't think, can anything good come from Nazareth? <laughs> the Christ child, the Christ has come from Nazareth, even his hometown. You see, Jesus was born and raised in the most humble of circumstances. And when you read the Bible story you realize that he came just as a common man. He was just a common man. His parents, he didn't come from anybody of notoriety. Mary and Joseph have no significance before God intervenes in their circumstances. Let's just be honest. Mary was a young, had to be a young teenage girl, maybe 15 or 16 years of age. Wrap your brain around that, people. That's whom God entrusted. Just the most common people. His daddy. What did his daddy do for a living? His daddy was a carpenter. You don't get any more basic in life, common in life than that. He was not a man of any great political power. or uh, He's not a man that surely made any money. Understand that Mary and Joseph, I don't know if we were thinking hundreds of years ago, we we would say they were just poor peasants. That's who they were. Uh, In fact, we we know that they were poor because in the story of Luke chapter 2, after Jesus is born and Mary has gone through her time of purification and they go to Jerusalem, only six or eight miles away, to give the sacrifice that the Old Testament prescribed in these circumstances, the birth of a child. The old Le- book of Leviticus taught you are to sacrifice a lamb. And then it says, if you are so poor that you cannot afford a lamb to sacrifice for this child, then you are to sacrifice a pair of uh, birds. 
two turtle doves or two pigeons. And the scripture says that's what Mary and Joseph sacrificed. Do you know why? Because they couldn't afford a lamb. They were just poor people. Uh, even as you read the Bible story, Jesus was just a common man from common parents surrounded by common people. The first people in Luke 2 that uh, get word of the coming of the, uh, the Christ child, it is the shepherds who are out in the fields. And so we obviously see them immortalized in the... Um, in the nativity scenes, and I, I will say for full disclosure, yes, I understand from Matthew's account, there are wise men who have been very prominent people that came. This is true. But by and large, Jesus was surrounded by very common people. Rob Hughes, no, if you say things to me before church, I'm just going to call you out from church. No, Rob Hughes says, no, these were just cowboys that didn't have cows. They, they just had goats and sheep, so they were shepherds or something. That's a, that's a loose translation of Rob Hughes' take on the nativity scene, which has been a point of discussion these Sundays as we've led up to Christmas, but maybe only in Rob's mind. But anyhow, um, but of all the people who would have been the first to hear the coming of the Christ, not the prominent, not the wealthy, not the well-connected, uh, not the religious no, it was just your common, average workers who happened to be working the night shift. And the angel announced to them. Huh. I'm also struck that Jesus was a common man that came from common people and surrounded himself with common people. Uh, and I take great comfort in this, uh, that Jesus was just a common looking guy. I want you to think with me for just a moment. I don't have long for this, and this is a little bit tongue-in-cheek. What did Jesus look like? Well, let me just let you in. Those, that picture that my Sunday school teacher showed me when I was four of what Jesus looked like, the Americanized guy with the long hair from the 1960s, yeah, I, no, it, that's not the case. Uh, and I know, I know if I say, what does Jesus look like, you have that, pic, that same picture in your brain. Uh, no, no. Uh, you know the interesting thing in all of ancient writings and history? I don't know of anybody that ever said, this is what Jesus looked like. We actually have a, something about Paul in ancient literature, the early church fathers. No one ever said, well, you know, he looked like this, or he was this tall, or this was his stature, or whatever. Do you know why? Well, I don't either. But anyhow, it's not the point. I'm theorizing here. I think he was just a common dude. It's kind of like people, I, I'm going to get way off here. You know, my wife will say to me, well, what did he or she look like? Well, I, I, I don't know. You know, I, I mean, if I have to describe, I'm just picking on Rob today. It's like, I... I, apparently, I'm not very good at describing what people look like, or maybe I'm not even looking at them, you know. Uh, but uh, what was I talking about? Yeah, Jesus, just a common-looking dude. It's kind of like, well, you know, he's just, you know, he's, if you met Jesus, like, well, you know, he's just kind of, you know, kind of just your Jewish guy. Just, yeah, I don't, I don't know, nothing, nothing real distinct 
about him would be the point. In fact, there is at least a little bit of inkling of this thought in the Messianic section of Isaiah 53 in verse 2. Isaiah 53, 2. For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Hey, average-looking guys like me take great comfort in the fact that Jesus was probably just a common-looking dude too, you know. Uh, But the other thing we discover is not only that Jesus was born in humble circumstances and he came as a common man, but when we read the Scripture... It's clear that he just lived a simple life. In fact, when he was in his three-year ministry, the reality was that he had no home. Brother Shane, he he was, as Rich Mullins would say, was just a homeless man. He wandered around. One man came and asked him one day, Lord, I'll follow you. Just tell me where you're going. And he said, I, I ain't got no home. That's what it says in the Hebrew, in the Greek. I ain't got no home. <laughs> Birds of the air, that, I'm joking. Birds of the air have nests and fox have holes, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Oh, I'm just wandering around doing my thing. You don't understand. I don't have a home. In fact, he didn't have any money. In Luke chapter 8, verse 3, it Luke's the one who tells us that there were women that out of their means took care of his basic needs. And if you think about Jesus' life, when he came to the end, do you remember how they they settled his estate? What did Jesus have left? He had the clothes on his back. And the soldiers cast lots to see who would get his garment. When it came down to the end, the only earthly possession that is described with Jesus at the end was the clothes on his back. And he even died without that. Hmm. When Jesus taught, he taught and he hung around common people that lived a simple life one day they in Luke 18 I believe he they want to know who is the greatest in the kingdom of God and God goes Jesus goes and gets a small child says no if you want to be great become like a little child the next chapter Matthew 19 14 uh, there were those that were wanting him to bless the little children and the disciples were shooing them away saying "Don't, don't bother the master and Jesus said in the old King James, it says, Suffer the little children to come unto me, for of such is the kingdom of God. The simplest, the most common people were the people that Jesus invariably targeted with his ministry. And so, in the scripture that I read uh, during the prayer time, Matthew chapter 25, verse 40, the scene of the great judgment. And those that Jesus said, come into my kingdom because I was hungry and you gave me food. I was naked and you gave me clothes. I was sick 
and you came to me and, and all these descriptions and the righteous will say, Lord, when did we ever see you like that and when did we ever do that? And Jesus says in Matthew 25, 40, when you did it unto the, and here's his phrase, the least of these, you did it to me. In Jesus' mind, there was a category for the least of these. And I would contend that was where his focus was in his ministry and is the one phrase that captures all that I would say to you today. When Jesus came, he came as one of the least of these. He came as a common man, born in humble circumstances, to live a simple life. And the question this morning is, why? When he could have been born in a palace, when he could have been born around the prominent, powerful people of his day, when he could have lived life as one of the affluent people of his day, why did Jesus come as a common man born in humble circumstances to live a simple life. Why? I don't actually know. I have two thoughts. If Jesus target were the least of these, the lowest in society, you can always move up from there. But if you ever start up, it's very difficult to go down. I, that's not really scriptural, theological. I'm just saying, I, I don't know. If God's strategizing, he's going, no, we're going to start with the least of these. And we can always move up from there. But anytime you start with these that deserve it, need it, are the, the prime candidates. It's very hard to go down, but if you start low, you can always go high. Kind of one of my thoughts. My second thought is this. That is who most of the world is. And we as Americans don't even realize it started looking at some statistics of the world. The median income, which means that uh, half the world lives below this level and half the world lives above that, that level. Not the average, but the median. And I don't have time to describe the difference. But the median yearly income in the world is $1,224, which is about $3 a day. The median person in the world lives on $3 a day. <clears throat> uh, the average American household 
their yearly income is just below $60,000. So, nice little American people, I want you to see this. The average person in the world lives on $1,224 a year. Our average is about 58 thousand a little over fifty eight thousand dollars household understand you can you can do the math a little bit different we've we've been told of our people in Guinea that they live on two dollars a day and we believe it uh, here's the other statistic seventy percent of the world 70% of the world lives on less than $10 a day. 70% of the world, 7 out of 10 people in the world live on less than $10 a day. Do you realize $10 a day is way below the poverty level in the United States? Way below. Do you know what percentage of people in America live on less than $10 a day? Five. Five percent of people in America live on less than $10 a day. No, this is just the way Daryl Smith's brain works. Seventy percent of the world lives on less than $10 a day. Only five percent of, of Americans do. Ninety-five percent of Americans live better than 70 percent of the world. It gets worse. It gets worse. If you make $34,000 a year, here, here, this is the most, this was the boom. If you make $34,000 a year, you are in the top 1% of the wealthiest people in the world. And many times we look in America in our little bubble and we talk about wealth and, and all of this. And there's a lot of things we could talk about here. But the reality is we are the top 1%. We are the elite in material wealth in our world in America. In fact, the statistics are overwhelming and staggering Somehow we begin to, I know this is getting a little bit heavy. Woo. We begin to view people from our perspective of our life and we value people based upon what our human, worldly, natural, materialistic standards are. And the reality is, is the vast number of people in the world aren't like us it came up in our life group maybe two Sundays ago why why would God bless America and some of y'all that were in there brother Milton shaking his head yes and remembers that conversation I think Melvin Bryan was the one who originally brought it up but why in the world would God bless America so that our economic standard is so way out of whack with, with the rest of the world? 
And the only thing I could come up with is God blessed us that we might be a spiritual blessing to the rest of the world in taking the gospel to them. It's the only thing I could think of. Why would God? Because God blessed us to be a blessing, not economically, but spiritually to our world, because ultimately Jesus did not come to deal with our economic poverty in the world. He came to deal with our spiritual poverty. And all of a sudden, when we begin to talk about spiritual poverty, oh, the scales begin to tip between America and the world. Ultimately, Jesus came to deal with our spiritual poverty. And when I, Brother Shane, when I think about those thoughts, Friday when I was sitting in my office, I thought, no, it's the ragamuffin gospel. I know I've read this before. Brennan Manning's book, The Ragamuffin. Ragamuffin is uh, like a Charles Dickens phrase from England, uh, speaking of a street urchin child who was clothed in rags, a ragamuffin, a street child. And he describes his gospel, and Rich Mullins names his band the Ragamuffin Band. I just, I've got to read this. And this is, this is actually chapter 3 of the Ragamuffin Gospel, and the title is the Ragamuffin Gospel. He, but after the initial paragraph, he says, Jesus spent a disproportionate amount of time with people described in the Gospels as the poor, the blind, the lame, the lepers, the hungry, sinners, prostitutes, tax collectors, the persecuted, the downtrodden, the captives, those possessed by unclean spirits, all who labor and are heavy burdened, the rabble who knew nothing of the law, the crowds, the little ones, the least, the last, the lost sheep of the house of Israel. In short, Jesus hung out with ragamuffins. Obviously, his love for failures and nobodies was not an exclusive love. That would merely substitute one class prejudice for another. He related with warmth and compassion to the middle and upper classes, not because of their family connections, financial clout, intelligence, or social register status, but because they too were God's children. While the term poor in the gospel includes the economically deprived and embraces all the oppressed who are dependent upon the mercy of others. It extends to all who rely entirely upon the mercy of God and accept the gospel of grace, the poor in spirit. Jesus' preference for little people and partiality toward, toward ragamuffins is an irrefutable fact of the gospel narrative. One of the mysteries of the gospel tradition is that this strange attraction of Jesus for the unattractive, this strange desire for the undesirable, this strange love for the unlovely. The key to this mystery is, is of course, Abba. Jesus does what he sees the Father doing. He loves those whom the Father 
loves. How does God view people? And in turn, how does God value people? And the question for us as we think of the story of Christmas and we think of the call to missions is how do I view people and how do I how do I view people and how do I value people because I think it has everything to do with whether we will take the gospel to those to the ends of the earth that from our American standards we might say well I don't know do they really matter at all I would contend from God's perspective they do and the one statement that I know that God made to impress that point on me was Jesus that he came as a common man born in the most humble of circumstances and he lived a simple life would you stand with me and pray today father today we pray that as we allow our hearts to think about the Christmas story that we would understand the statement that you were making and that father it would change our perspective of the way that we see the world and what you value and who we ought to value and what we ought to do about it and so father I pray in these days uh, that you'd help us to to grasp the thought of how much that you loved me in my spiritual poverty and that father what I ought to do because you've so blessed me so that others could hear the same message and so uh, we pray that you would move in our midst in this season of the year father we would see people and value people as you do and we pray it in Jesus name